Hi, I'm Rishi, uh, co-founder and CEO of Indicube. This episode of the Founder Thesis podcast features a conversation with a veteran entrepreneur with 25 years of experience in building businesses. Rishi Das had just completed his engineering degree in the year 1999 when he started his first venture as an entrepreneur. In those days, it was unthinkable to build a business on external funding, and he built up a profitable recruitment services business thanks to a combination of good timing and his ability to capitalize on the opportunities that present themselves. Rishi's ability to spot and capitalize opportunities is what led to the birth of his second and third businesses. The services business led to the birth of a recruitment technology business as his second business, and his third business, which is by far the most ambitious undertaking, is the shared office space business IndieCube. Stay tuned for Akshay's fascinating conversation with Rishi Das, in which he attempts to learn his secret sauce of spotting opportunities and building large businesses. Can we start with a broad uh, uh, journey into entrepreneurship? What made you step into the world of entrepreneurship? The idea about entrepreneurship uh, very vaguely was always in my head. When I went to IIT Roorkee, that is where uh, I see that this whole thing got manifested uh, purely because of uh, some coincidence and some opportunities that came my way. So I get an elective into entrepreneurship. Uh, while being there and those days entrepreneurship was not like something what it is today uh, even people had a difficulty pronouncing the word entrepreneur yeah. and then uh, uh, there was a science technology entrepreneurship park at uh, IIT Roorkee and I happened to start the student chapter for that and uh, uh, as it happens to everyone on campus uh, I was lucky to get a job with Tata Unisys uh, uh, joined there and the very first day I realized that I'm back to kindergarten and I just felt that I am too restless uh, to actually go through this ladder. And pretty much that very day decided that job is not my piece of cake. Held on to the job for six, eight months, uh, wrote CAT uh, and could not clear that. I decided to uh, abruptly move out and uh, head back home. And the first few days, my parents thought that I'm here on vacation and all. And sooner or later, they realized that he's not going back. Uh, and they said, fine, explore what you want to do and give yourself a couple of years and see that if things work out the way you want them to be. So so, so then started exploring and Lucknow being a small city, typically, and uh, 90s was not the time. Uh, uh, there was a lot of challenges, typically the coalition politics and mafia and so many other things. Finally uh, decided to start CareerNet along with my brother Anshuman. Okay, interesting. So, uh, you spent a year experimenting before deciding to start CareerNet. Um, yeah. Okay. So, uh, you know, today when people think of doing entrepreneurship, they will evaluate how big is the market? What's the total addressable market? Is there a founder market fit? Am I the right person to build this uh, business and so on? Uh, what was the process like for you? You know, like, when did you feel that, yes, this is the right business for me to do and I have found like a fit uh, in terms of my skill sets, what, uh, how big the opportunity is and so on. So, uh, so I think, yeah, most of the things that you said, yeah, I think are all uh, 
inventions or creations in the last five or ten years. Uh, but when we were starting, nothing of that type of honestly crossed our minds. Uh, I think why we narrowed down on this opportunity of starting career net three four things we looked at. Uh, one was that what is our core competence? And we realized <clears throat> our core competence was that we came from a, a good uh, degree uh, and uh, had a brief stint with IT, understood IT uh, to some extent. And those were the early days of IT. That was one thing which we could see as was also core competence. Uh, the second aspect was that uh, uh, why choose recruitment? Whatever opportunity we were looking at, one thing was very clear that we cannot afford any capital capital. Because my father uh, was an honest uh, government uh, servant, upright servant. So so we never had the capital, so to say. So one thing was very clear that the business should not require a lot of capital. Uh, that was uh, a big requirement. And uh, uh, while we were at college, both me and my brother, my brother is my co-founder uh, in CareerNet. Uh, so so both of us were very active in into our alumni activities uh, as well as our uh, basically the campus activities. So we had a I will say a very fulfilling uh, four years stint, both of us at our campuses. So I think networking came very naturally to us. Uh, so, so that's a big plus uh, we were having. Uh, and what we found at that point of time was missing was that IT industry was just starting. Like, like uh, If you see when my brother joined in 98 from IIT Delhi, and when his uh, employee ID was about 2000. Uh, so you can imagine Infosys, good, bad, all combined was 2000 people. Uh, so, and, and the industry was doing quite well growing because the Y2K problem had already started coming in. So we found that whatever people who are uh, providing manpower uh, or recruitment services uh, in, 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 for the IT industry were all essentially coming from FMCG and pharma because those were the two sectors which got liberalized even before the IT boom started. Uh, and those people were having a lot of difficulty understanding the technology, the skill sets and all of that. So so we found that was our USP, uh, that we came from technology backgrounds. We had a brief stint with technology as careers. Uh, so so we found that was a USP, capital requirement was low. Those days were uh, different, like uh, Nokri was just there. Uh, and there was technically uh, no job portal, so to say. The social media obviously was absent. Uh, the outgoing uh, calls were 16 rupees a minute. I think that was a time when communication was very low. Uh, so we believe that people if they, who have to do well in this kind of business have to survive and thrive on their natural networks, uh, typically which they bring from their schools or campuses and all that. So I think uh, all that pretty much uh, fitted well. Uh, the, the low capital requirement, our core competence, our USP, uh, and the gap that we saw in the market. Uh, is where we narrow down that this is an area where we should uh, focus and uh, explore further. Okay, okay, amazing. Uh, how did the uh, <clears throat> revenue numbers stack up? Like first year when you started this, what kind of revenue did you do? How many employees did you have? How did that progress over the next couple of years? Like like rough numbers, I'm sure you don't remember yeah, yeah. the exact numbers. So if you see the first year was 99, uh, 2000 financial year. And uh, we had uh, just three employees uh, other than me and Anshuman. And between five of us, we did a revenue of about 85 lakhs. Uh, so that was a, a, a lot of money, <laughs> typically, as you can imagine, yes. uh, when the salary in IT industry uh, was about uh, close to two lakh rupees for a fresher. Uh, uh, so it's that kind of a salary number 
uh, for five offers uh, generating and pretty much everything was margin. Uh, as, as you can imagine, because hardly any overhead. You're operating from a home office and you're living in the same house. And a couple of rooms in Pora Mangala we have allocated for office. So that was our office home uh, kind of a thing. And the best part I must say is uh, all the three people who joined us then in the first year of our business are still with us. So so that's a very heartening thing. Like 20, they must all be completing 25 years now in a year's time. So yeah. Amazing. Amazing. Okay. And uh, like how did it uh, proceed from this? So 85 lakhs first year, three employees next year? Yes. Yeah, obviously it gave us a lot of confidence that we have hit something big. And uh, we started building on that. Uh, and uh, then uh, subsequent year, we did about 1.4 crores of revenue. This was in 2000-2001 uh, financial year. And uh, uh, then year three was a tough one because by that time, the dot-com burst had happened. Uh, so 9-11 also. 9-11 happened. And, uh, yes, correct. Yeah. And then this whole uh, loosened bankruptcy happened. Uh, they filed for bankruptcy in US and then India normally takes a while or there is always a lag when something explodes in US. It takes at least two quarters to four quarters uh, to hit India. So I think we could see that what happened with 9-11. I think uh, India, it hit around the middle of 2002. Uh, is what was it? So 2002 was a tough year. Uh, we had a flat year. But a lot of, uh, I will say, capability building happened during that period. Because before that, we were all focused on mostly the vanilla hiring skills. Typically, the, the C++, Visual C++, those days and all those kind of things. But uh, what we found uh, uh, at that point of time, uh, the semiconductor, the electronics, those industries were continuing to do well because they were not affected by the dot-com. So, uh, so we started working with Texas Instruments uh, around that time, uh, uh, kind of companies. Uh, uh, plus, uh, other areas of technology, which were more, I will say, core engineering kind of skill sets. Uh, is where uh, we ventured into and we started expanding into do other domains also like banking and financial services and all that. Uh, so, so and when 2003 came in, by the time this whole dot-com bust uh, problem had gone over, uh, I think we saw very good growth because by that time, the MNCs have started coming to India. Uh, uh, typically, it was no longer just the startup, startup thing. And uh, being one of the early movers, uh, uh, pretty much most of the MNCs at that time, starting from Microsoft to Intel to whatnot, uh, almost all leading MNCs, we were able to impanel and work. So between 2003 and eight, a large part of our growth happened through MNCs, uh, the offshore development centers. Uh, startups were not uh, too prolific as they are now. Uh, the startup thing started much later. But uh, those uh, those were the years where a lot of it. Then we started geographical expansion. We opened up our offices in Delhi and Hyderabad. Uh, in addition to Bangalore, uh, yeah, and then uh, also started getting a lot of business from Chennai and Pune as well. Uh, so yeah, so that's how it started building up. By 2008, what was your top line? 2008, we were doing about uh, close to 20 crores of top line. Yeah, amazing, amazing. Yeah, about okay. 20 crores okay. of top line we were doing. Yeah. And what was your employee count? Employee count uh, will be about. Close to 200 people by that time. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, rec recruitment is a very, very people dependent business. Uh, yeah. Your core asset is your people. You know, I mean, there, there's no IP asset build as such. Uh, it's just people. How did you scale up that asset of people, like managing 200 recruiters or 200 people? Yeah. 
making sure everybody is profitable, productive. Uh-huh. And I'm sure you would not have had like a ready talent. You must have had to hire people and train them to be recruiters. Yes. Just, just yes. tell me about the journey of uh, organization building, capability building. What all did you do there? What did you learn? You know, yeah. some of your insights. Sure. So I think the first thing, uh, we followed the first principles approach uh, to hiring. And uh, the first few people that we hired, obviously, you don't have any brand equity as a startup. Uh, so people who join you uh, somewhere know you uh, directly or indirectly. So I think our first three hires were like that. Uh, the first employee to join us came through my brother's school uh, friend's reference. The second employee was my schoolmate. Third was his batchmate at MBA like that. And then we brought in a good number of people from IIT Delhi and IIT Rookie who were our juniors from those campuses. And that was quite, a, I will say, a disruptive thing at that point of time because uh, it was completely unheard of uh, engineers from premier campuses joining the recruitment industry. Uh, and, and those people were uh, obviously uh, very loyal, very cohesive. Uh, and and it, it was friends' company. Uh, there was no concept of stock option option at that point of time much in P and all we started doing it but it was not like what it is today so I think the biggest reason people stayed back was they felt that they are in the company of friends there was a lot of mutual respect uh, there is a high amount of trust uh, uh, amongst people and uh, we will typically work uh, start our day around 10-11 in the morning and go till 2 in the night and then we will head out a lot of times to ISC to have one omelette uh, uh, pretty much uh, and a few of our senior employees initially when they came to Bangalore they stayed in the same house where we were staying so we shared the rooms uh, and all of that so I think that was the biggest thing and uh, uh, where that culture got built up uh, of sense of belongingness uh, over there uh, I will say that up to first 20-25 employees never even got an offer letter uh, three, uh, <laughs> there was no concept of offer letter for those people and I and there are people of that lot who have stayed back with us where we have not done any appraisal discussion in the last 20 years. Uh, there have been good years, bad years, uh, whatever uh, we could afford or give it to them. Uh, they have been more than happy with that. Second thing was uh, we when uh, in 2000 itself, when our data, uh, database was crossing 1000 employees, uh, we realized that the Excel sheets are not going to work any further. Uh, so, so that's where we realized that we need to make investments into technology and, uh, and ensure that uh, because we realized early on that uh, data is database at that point of time when Nokri and Monster was still just coming in, database was a big IP, intellectual property in this business. Uh, so, so we were quite clear, clear on that, uh, that uh, whatever history of interaction we have with any candidate should be documented and, and there was no concept of private database typically. All the employees can log in and see a particular candidate's case where it is being taken up and all of that. Uh, so I, we could reduce a lot of duplication of effort, a uh, lot of silos approach uh, uh, over there. And uh, and uh, if somebody's case has not worked out in company X, then we know we can try in a company which might be looking at a 90% fit instead of 100% fit and all of that. So, so technology was another uh, uh, big uh, area of investment from the beginning. And obviously, we could not afford to hire full-time technologists. So most of our technology, initial technology, got built by our friends uh, who were who did moonlighting for us. Typically, they were working in uh, day jobs over the weekends or evening. They were coding and helping us uh, get our initial uh, code out. 
the third thing I will say what helped us was uh, we realized early on that recruitment is not a, uh, just a matchmaking business. Recruitment is a supply chain business. And uh, there is a lot more to recruiting than just finding the right candidate. Uh, if you look at the whole life cycle, uh, the screening, scheduling, assessments, uh, background check, uh, and then the whole pro application processing is a lot of uh, work. Uh, so with that thought, uh, we started uh, HirePro uh, uh, typically. Uh, so, so that ensured that we no longer remained a firm which was just supplying CVs. Uh, we were able to capture the whole life cycle. Uh, of hiring and uh, and effectively differentiate uh, from our competition. Plus, we were able to build a lot of stickiness with our clients because uh, we, since we were covering more much larger part, like for example, pre-SS candidates, uh, we were providing to the companies. Uh, and uh, unlike today, at that point of time, the engineering colleges were far and few. So, so companies wanted pre-trained people. That was a big requirement. Uh, and campus hiring used to be a really big thing at, at that point of time. So we came up with the concept of pre-SS candidates because companies were finding it difficult to go to every possible campus. Uh, so, so, so basically, so how do you pre-SS the candidates, curate that database and make them available? So we started doing that in 2002-03. Uh, so, so, so those are the pioneering efforts that we did, uh, which allowed us to remain ahead of the others. And uh, also because we came from technology background, we always resonated with the business folks. Uh, and the technology folks better than compared to the HR folks. Uh, so, 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 so that way we were able to cut down a lot of bureaucracy. Uh, because when we started working with MNCs, we realized that uh, uh, there is a good amount of bureaucracy. But since we were very closely working with the technology folks, the bureaucracy never came in our way. So, yeah. Okay, fascinating. I want to kind of zoom in a little bit more. Uh, in my experience, uh, the recruitment firms which are profitable tend to have. Uh, very high focus on productivity, on tracking recruiters' output. And so so you're saying that uh, in your case, it was more of a trust-based environment. Yes, and so yes. you did not need like that level of a stick approach. Uh, yeah. It we, was more of creating trust environment. and Yeah. You'll be surprised till date, other than for the executive search, which is a team of 20 people, we do not have any concept of incentives, uh, basically, which are paid out on closures. Uh, uh, not a single wow. uh, rupee gets paid out on closures because we never wanted people which is industry norm shops. right like, yes. I, yeah so, okay. so the culture was more That's like really software good. software culture uh, it was very collaborative because of that so people were not operating in silos they were not operating like shops uh, uh, within themselves they were much more uh, uh, confident to share information uh, if they are talking over a chai uh, then they were happy to say oh, why don't you try this candidate this might work better uh, uh, in this position and all of that. So there was a lot of collaboration uh, actually and uh, on, on the floor. So and that was a very conscious decision because we could see that the nemesis of this industry was this, that there are 80 people but everybody is operating as 80 shops. Uh, so we completely desisted from that from the beginning. How do you align incentives then? From the beginning have a 10 to 15% variable fee component in the salary and that is mostly paid out on the team's performance. Uh, so for a particular business unit of 25, 30 people, how their team has done as a whole and what productivity level they have been able to achieve, closures, conversions and all that. Uh, against that, most of the bonuses uh, have been paid. So bonuses were not a very large component ever, uh, typically 85% salary. And, and most of the people used to get, uh, I will say, 
and maybe 5% people will get less than 100% promise bonuses. Most of the people used to get more than that. So we kept uh, deliberately the bonuses low. Uh, uh, that was a risk we took. Uh, but in the hindsight, it allowed us to uh, ensure collaboration and camaraderie uh, on the floor. Which is opposite to today's mindset. I mean, today's mindset is gig economy. You get paid per piece of work you do. You don't work, uh, you don't get paid. Uh, so uh, you feel that uh, this approach of giving job security, giving financial security gives you better results than a gig economy approach of paper output? You have to decide that what do you want to create. If you want to create an organization uh, and a long-lasting organization, I, I don't think the silo approach is going to work. Uh, so for example, uh, uh, if you see in CareerNet, uh, we don't have a concept of work from home. Uh, fine, if you require, you take it, there's no problem. Because we want people to meet up, interact. And I always used to tell people that, look, whatever uh, Infosys, Wipro or a Mindtree kind of company can give to their employees, we will try to give you better than that. But if you compare us with a captive center uh, of a large MNC bank or a very high-tech startup uh, running in US kind of a company, then we are a profit center and that's not uh, the benchmark. For example, right from 99, we have been providing food to all our employees. Uh, food subsidy was always there. We provide transport to our employees. 50% of the transport costs of people who want to avail the company transport is paid out by us. So those, and then the health benefits and all that, even when we are startup, we provided that. And uh, uh, even before me or Anshuman decided to make our homes as our first few employees had houses, we were quite liberal in giving them even housing loans uh, to our initial set of people. We are quite liberal with personal loans. We don't have a concept of traveling and dearness allowance. It is purely on trust. Uh, what is required? So we always operated the way uh, a family will operate uh, typically and uh, look at things. For example, we never kept uh, booze as part of the office. Uh, if there is any booze in any party, you have to pay for it. And that is the reason you see that we never took any debt, any equity in the career net business. Uh, built it from scratch with a rented computer. Uh, I still remember the first uh, computer that we took on rent was 2,500 rupees uh, monthly rent. Uh, that was there in 98, 99. Uh, so, so started with that and uh, uh, built it. Uh, I, I think that's the right way, according to me, to build the business. Unlike what we saw uh, happened in the last 10 years. I'm happy that correction is happening now. Uh, so. Incredible. I just love the approach you took of creating a second home, which would have also helped you hire yes. better quality yes. and retain. Any. So most of our hiring was from campus. Uh, we always preferred to hire freshers. Uh, we had a, 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 a basically concept of care, career net academy for recruiting excellence. Uh, and uh, everybody okay. undergoes a three-month training. It's a full-time training, uh, which everybody has to undergo. Because what we realized when we were going to campuses, there was no concept of recruitment as a career. There were MBA, HR and all that. Recruitment at best was an elective. So to have a professional who is a full-blown uh, uh, recruitment professional, uh, uh, there was no training uh, or no program as such. Uh, so we, we said that let's go to the drawing board and, and create our own programs uh, uh, over there. And like, for example, in India, if you see when people join, uh, make an offer and a lot of them don't join. Now, this is a very India-specific problem. Unless until you, uh, a recruiter, understand the cultural nuances, uh, 
that why people don't take offers, don't join, and they know the right probing skills. Uh, it's very hard to improve your conversion. So we have a program called POFU, like Post Offer Follow Up. Uh, now there are three levels of competencies we have in that. So one has to take certifications to cross one level of competency. Uh, so there are POFU experts in the company uh, whose only job is to see that conversions are happening and all of that. Uh, so like that, then the domain specialization, because the amount of hiring we do in so many industries, uh, so we expect our recruiters to be uh, able to resonate with the hiring managers. Uh, so domain training is very important, whether it is banking, whether it is pharma, uh, technology, technology is so deep, uh, semiconductor, uh, telecom, wireless, like that. Uh, so also domain expertise is a key focus of area. And uh, a lot of people are engineers uh, uh, who join us. That is there then MBA with but a lot of technical background. Uh, so so we always believe that building our own cadre is the right way rather than importing too much of talent here, there and all that. And you would typically hire MBAs or engineers like from campus? So what it kind was of a colleges? mix. It was a mix uh, uh, of hiring. Uh, and one thing we were very paranoid in hiring was diversity, especially the regional diversity. Uh, so we never uh, picked up people, too many people from a region. Because that again, we realized in India was a big challenge that once you have too many people from one region, uh, then people start using the same language in their conference rooms and all of that. It becomes very difficult uh, for subsequent uh, freshers or young people to survive in the company. So, so, so regional diversity was very critical. So as a result, uh, uh, we used to go far-flung event to places like Lucknow or Bihar or Bengal to recruit, even though most of the people we required were in Bangalore. And Bangalore also, wherever we went, we always preferred the colleges which had a lot of diversity of students uh, over there. And within that, I will say 70% were engineers in the beginning. Uh, but engineers, as technology started becoming more and more lucrative, uh, it was becoming hard to attract and retain engineers. Uh, then we moved a fair bit to uh, MBAs uh, as well. Over a period of time, we found that a lot of people who are not from IITs or with not great pedigree, uh, they were doing equally good or better. So I think that is where we were corrected. Uh, and, and we started looking at the more attitude uh, of people rather than uh, just looking at their pedigrees. Also, from a retention perspective, we came up with a lot of career paths. Like, for example, suppose somebody is a headhunter at heart, right? He wants to only do headhunting. Then we know that the person wants to be an individual contributor. That person can go on to be into executive search, uh, where they can uh, handle uh, only high-value placements uh, and be high-touch and all that. Uh, then there are people who want to be more of uh, uh, managers. So they, they can go on to become delivery managers, uh, typically managing a team of 30, 40 people, a large project, uh, uh, the people process technology part of it, handling it very well. Uh, then the concept of practice managers came in, yeah. where people require domain knowledge. Uh, people who wanted to be more into client-facing roles, who can do consulting, who can advise companies how to set up their India operations and all of that, uh, like that. So a so lot of uh, career paths came in. And as a result, uh, we were able to retain a lot of people and grow them uh, uh, eventually. Otherwise, recruitment tends to be a very flat uh, organization. Uh, and uh, then people start leaving, venturing on their own and all of that. So so those, uh, those that also came very handy in retaining people. Did you have uh, a lot of like centralized uh, functions to hand over? Like, you know, one approach is with an agency, you have one person who's end-to-end -end responsible from sourcing all the 
till joining and invoicing or the second approach is you could break this up and they could be a team which is only sourcing or the team like you mentioned your post offer follow up yes. as a separate team uh, so so did you go with that approach like yes. functional splits yeah functional functional split okay. is the approach we picked up because we realized that see when you do not hire people with very i will say high level of intellect uh, it is always easier to give the same person more uh, of the same work to do rather than giving him her 10 different things to do you give uh, five times more things of the same type the people do better uh, over there so at one point of time if somebody is focusing a lot on head hunting we allowed them to just focus on head hunting uh, the client relations was handled by somebody else uh, in, in terms of follow up then post offer follow up as you rightly said uh, was a separate team which came into uh, there and then the billing invoicing collections was separate and then pe- we always encourage people to do employee rotation so so not put people in just one role for a long time uh, because their career development stop but at one point of time always focus that uh, they do one part uh, so that that again allowed us to scale up fascinating um you you mentioned a couple of other initiatives like you spoke of pre assessed candidates how did you monetize that i am assuming the core recruitment business would be like a 8.33% of the salary offered would yeah, be your earning yeah. or basically anywhere or starting from salary. there going up to say two months uh, depending upon the okay. hierarchy as well as the uh, uh, the rarity of the skill set uh, is is what used to be our fee model so this was the model when it came to sourcing of profiles uh, then we have assessment as a service so they were there, there uh, we were developing the content uh, for companies and providing them the platform to run that uh, test and all So there it is charged on parest that would be an, an alternative to metal yes exactly yeah, metal very uh, okay. very track kind of uh, business so there uh, we were uh, doing that so that business is doing well continues to grow so so so, so there the pricing is uh, that would be a, like a saas business subscription it's a saas business it's a saas business pricing uh, yeah like uh, pay as you use model uh, kind of a thing uh, where uh, yeah any number you consume you pay and then what has happened because over years we now have data uh, so we have tried to blend both hiring as well as assessment where we are saying that we will give you pre assess talent and we will promise you a service level uh, we are say if you need two candidates you should be able to make one offer uh, so bring it down to that level so organizations are willing to pay us more instead of say 8.33 they don't mind paying 10% 11% uh, purely because it saves a lot of time at their end uh so so that is a value addition we were able to bring in uh because of the amount of data that we had on the candidates and uh, this model worked very well in the entry level hiring so what was happening if you see 2003 to 7 uh kind of a time frame or even now uh, uh, to a large extent that the bigger companies like infi wipro were going to possibly every campus and hiring but company which were looking at hiring say 100 people 200 people Uh, and were not paying like a google or a microsoft uh, kind of a uh, very high salary those companies were actually missing out uh, uh, they did not had the numbers to justify going to say 100 colleges uh, over there they were paying well the quality of work they were doing was also very good the candidates were also interested but what we found the real thing lacking was that how do you connect the two so for such companies we came up with a concept of a, a pep program this is a, a preliminary exam for placement uh physically pep as we used to call it and then we used to go to all these campuses and do the pep uh, uh and then using that database uh the companies were able to recruit 
now uh, the placement uh, officers or heads initially had a lot of uh, resistance because they felt that we are maybe violating their hiring process. But we to when the over a period of time, they realized that it's not the case. These people are adding a set of companies which otherwise we are not getting on the campus, uh, typically. So, and a lot of people want to go into domain. But uh, suddenly they realize that oh, one big mass recruiter comes in and everybody has to, uh, one way or the other, forcefully apply there and get in. So, so they also wanted people who were very keen into uh, electronics or uh, uh, instrumentation and all should get those kind of jobs. Uh, so that program was a very, very pioneering effort. And uh, that allowed smaller companies to have the same kind of reach what a bigger company was having uh, uh, without having to spread themselves too thin uh, uh, over there. So, so that was a good pioneering effort. This whole hire pro thing, uh, we pretty much pioneered the concept of RPO in India, recruitment process outsourcing. We did our first RPOs in 2003-04 uh, because we were finding that there was a lot of leakage in the hiring system. Like you send a CV today, right? And uh, now all interviews, if you, even if you are taking three or four interviews, the whole process can get completed in four, five hours. Uh, but you are taking 30 days to make an offer. Uh, so where is the 29 days going? Uh, and that was all back and forth. Uh, uh, that uh, the hiring manager is not there, the interview, uh, the candidate is not there, uh, the disk feedback has not come in, that has not come in and all of that. So that is where we said that uh, let's not uh, just focus on sourcing. Uh, let's have our teams also go and sit next to the hiring managers and, and outsource the recruitment process. So RPO uh, was a, a concept that got built in. And recruitment being a supply chain business, technology investment was always very significant. Even if you look at today, we will have about 150 people in the technology team. Uh, and so it's a large team. Uh, and, and a lot of technology we license. Today, if you look at a company like Accenture, uh, they hire about 30,000 people from campus. And the entire hiring uh, for Accenture campus hiring runs on our platform. Uh, and they made an exception for that worldwide. Uh, they were using a global platform. But uh, looking at the complexity of hiring in India, they made an exception. We call it a, a TERM which is technology enabled, remotely managed. Uh, uh, the, so, so, so that is our, our belief that uh, if you should enable it to technology, and remotely manage it. Uh, so that uh, the, the personalization, the effectiveness doesn't go down. Uh, at the same time, we have better control uh, to that system centrally and all that. Like today, if you see, we support a lot of hiring for companies in US. Uh, this is US to US hiring. Uh, but the whole thing is run from India uh, over there. So this is all possible because of technology. Fascinating. Uh, just to zoom in a little bit more, uh, RPO, uh, how is that monetized? How is it? Uh, how is the fee structure there different from regular uh, sourcing fees? So RPO, we have a process management fee uh, and that is separate from the sourcing fee because suppose a company is hiring 1,000 people, then obviously if we take up an RPO, our commitment to them is to get the, the 1,000 hires in a given cost uh, uh, point uh, with the right turnaround time and right quality. Uh, in quality, we measure through certain parameters like uh, conversion ratios, early attrition, and all of that. Uh, all that goes into the SLA. So it's a, it's like a multi-year contract that we sign up that uh, whatever, I suppose, a thousand hires you are doing over year on year, for next five years, we'll run the RPO engagement for you. Uh, and we manage it through an on-site, off-site team uh, with uh, whatever technology they have, balanced technology we bring in as an operator or uh, do that. So here uh, we have two fee structures. One fee structure is basically as a processing fee. Uh, uh, it is because I can't go and say that if you are hiring thousand people, 
all thousand will come from career net. Uh, the, because the company will have employee referrals, they will have job boards, uh, they will have other equipment vendors uh, working in and all that. So there is a clear line where we draw that all RPO engagements are managed by HirePro. They're not managed by CareerNet. And CareerNet happens to be one sourcing source, typically, uh, for them. There are other vendors. Like today, if you see, we have more than 2,000 recruitment firms uh, which we work with. Uh, uh, now, these are firms like CareerNet. And the amount of transparency, trust we have, they are comfortable working. Because we are essentially a regulator player. So there is a conflict. Uh, CareerNet is a player. There is Hyper, the regulator. Uh, so we have been able to draw that kind of a service level, a transparency and all that, that uh, a lot of recruitment firms are willing to work with Hypro, part with their data, and they trust that data is not getting leaked or mismanaged and all that. So so, so that is how the RPO engagement works, that uh, we get a fee for every uh, hire, like say 5,000 going up to 15,000 rupee kind of a fee for every uh, 1,000 placements. Whereas, suppose 100 people out of this 1,000 came from CareerNet, uh, there the sourcing fee will be applicable at 8.33 or 12 or whatever, like that. Okay, got it. Uh, fascinating. So, Hire Pro is essentially your uh, regulatory and technology business. Yeah. Like, like one is like an RPO plus Correct. tech. Uh, in, yes. So, your assessment product is in Hire Pro, yeah. the uh, PEP right. uh, that, uh, for previous pre-evaluated candidate hiring that is also at yes. Hire Pro. Yes. So anything minus hmm. headhunting is all part of Hire Pro. Yeah. Okay. Like that. Got it. Got it. Uh, how is PEP priced? PEP. Uh, and do you still run that? Yeah. So P, so we run the PEP. We don't run it as a PEP, PEP any longer. Uh, because in yeah, the last 15 years, things have evolved a lot. But uh, we have pre-assessed candidates, uh, which uh, we provide. And uh, again, the, uh, uh, nobody now for pressure is willing to pay 8.3-10% and all that. Uh, so those normally work mm. at a flat fee of say anywhere from 5,000 going up to say 40-50,000 rupees, depending upon uh, uh, basically the rarity of the uh, skill set, uh, the niche and all that. Uh, so between I will... Yes. But it is still a success fees. If uh, It's not like a paper profile fees we because we one thing we have desisted is basically that we don't see us as an opti.com we never wanted to sell our database uh because we always believe a database is our ip you're comfortable taking on risk uh and that uh, uh by virtue of taking on risk your margins are better yeah, essentially yeah. like the low risk option would be to just say for every assist profile that you yes. access i will charge you thousand rupees yeah, for example yeah. but then the margin there would be very poor yes uh, you would not uh, probably retention would also be poor i'm guessing exactly. because if a company doesn't convert yeah, yeah. they will not buy the product again yeah. you're right yeah. yeah okay amazing amazing okay okay higher pro one part is the ss profiles uh, the other part is rpo uh, yeah. what about the core technology like, like do you have like a SaaS product yes also? we have a SaaS uh, product uh, and so, so through that hmm. product, one, uh, if a company is looking at running, uh, automating their entire recruitment department, uh, that is what we are able to take up, uh, which is, uh, that is one. Then, uh, more often than not, we have found that companies come to us for point problem, point solution. Like, for example, we have a very strong platform for uh, self-proctored assessments. Because, and then during COVID and even later on, uh, now when you are giving written tests to someone, uh, remotely, how do you know that the test has been fairly done? We have a very, very strong platform, a lot of AI built in around that. And a lot of companies use that, like a company like Amazon uh, uses our proctoring platform. Uh, 
uh, appears and uses our fracturing platform. So that we have realized has become a product by itself, actually, uh, over there. Then interviewing as a service is doing very well. Uh, where people, they want uh, high quality technology managers or interviewers, complete Ola, Uber of interviewing. So suppose you have 100 hires to do and you need to do 500 interviews, but you don't have the bandwidth. You have the bandwidth to do, say, 100 final interviews. So the 400 interviews that have to be done are all outsourced. And uh, so we, because we, we develop a curated database of uh, interviewers uh, from which the companies can choose from. So right from the time they say that this candidate has to be interviewed till that candidate interviews transcripts are shared with the company. The whole thing runs on our platform. Uh, so the scheduling, the feedback, the interactions, uh, the, uh, uh, the proctoring part of it, everything is done on our platform. Uh, so, so this is a highly scalable service where any company can reach out for any kind of interviews uh, uh, is there. Uh, then now what we are finding, because when you do volume hiring, uh, you have a very different challenge. For example, if a company comes to us and says that I want to recruit, say, two salespeople in 600 districts of India, uh, we can complete that kind of hiring in a matter of three to four days. Uh, and that too supporting 24 vernacular languages. Uh, because in a lot of... Uh, how do you do that? Like, so, how did you build that? So what building? happens is that a lot of these jobs, the issue is not about uh, the competence. The issue is about intent. Uh, and uh, intent also requires understanding the socio-economic uh, profile of the individual. Uh, it's very, very important. Uh, like, uh, uh, for example, if you want to hire people for insurance sales, right? Uh, nobody wants to do that job. Essentially, in India, everybody wants a desk job uh, in an AC kind of environment. And the the brutal reality is that uh, most of the jobs are fleet or speed jobs or they are the shop floor jobs. So, so those kind of jobs, uh, how do you ensure that you are able to reach out to a very large number of people without any human intervention and get to those people who are actually interested. So like, for example, we have auto-dialers, like whatever database we have. So if there is a job opening, then we can run campaigns. We are in a matter of few hours. We know uh, that if you are interested, dial one. If you want to talk to our candidate, dial two. If you want to apply, dial three, like that kind of a thing. So that allows us to actually reach out and sift a uh, very large number of people. Then uh, once you have found somebody who's interested, then uh, we do a lot of asynchronous assessments uh, where there is a video that they record, a minute uh, long video. Tell me something about yourself, right? That's a very common question. Now, most of these jobs, uh, those are important things. Uh, then what does this job entail? What this job is not all about? Orientation about the job. So a lot of these activities we are able to do without actually any human intervention uh, over there. Then this whole document collection. Uh, now you require their 10th mark sheets, 12, this, that, all that. So everything is on that. Uh, especially when you hire for banks, uh, the KYC is huge for employees. Uh, so so the entire document submission, if you have to take your photograph, you just take a selfie and upload. You just keep on scanning your document, you keep uploading. Uh, so your, your doc collection becomes highly DIY uh, over there. And technically, the company can send out an offer letter in a matter of two, three days. Plus, we map the socioeconomic profile. Now, somebody says, okay, in Delhi, I want to hire graduates for a very low-end fetal street job. I don't think you will be able to hire. Uh, you, you, you have to look at 12th pass people. You have to look at people in the socioeconomic profile where their parents or their household incomes 
are are say less than forty fifty thousand rupees in a Delhi kind of place. So there is a lot of uh, socio economic uh, data that you require on these profiles. So we have been able to crack that kind of hiring as well, uh, where uh, anybody in a fifteen thousand twenty thousand rupee salary bracket also requires to be hired in a vernacular language. We are able to do that. Uh, then the kind of postings that you need to do. You can't be posting on a nokri.com. You need to do in the regional vernacular uh, newspapers and publications and so much uh, of, of that. So th th that's the whole thing that we have been able to create because uh, that is a Bharat hiring, right? That's not India. So I always say that when we started the business, we were doing five-star business, five-city demand, five-city supply. But now... Uh, if you want to, uh, what uh, our Prime Minister says, uh, $5 trillion economy, uh, now the focus is that can I hire in 100 cities or 100 towns across India? Uh, and when you hire that scale, the problem statement is very, very different. So, so over years, we have been able to develop that kind of engine uh, where we have brought all this together, the assessment knowledge, the hiring, sourcing, uh, documentation and everything together. And anytime, anywhere recruiting, basically, that's the thing. That we are talking about and one more thing i will say that uh, we as a company have always believed that the issue in this country is not about talent availability the issue is about talent connectivity uh, there is always a uh, uh, candidate somewhere available uh, with the right skill set right compensation right attitude uh, available uh, how do you reach out to that candidate and can you in a cost to effective viable manner um, find that individual and bring it uh, to the well. I think is the challenge and the opportunity. We do a lot of work for non-profit also now. Like look at people retiring for armed forces. Uh, typically now, how you get those people back to job? Uh, a lot of women uh, who take break because of marriage and uh, family expansion want to come back. Now you can't expect that individual to suddenly come back and write an aptitude test and get into a company. So we run programs in collaboration with companies where such women with their sponsorship support runs uh, boot camps uh, where for a month time, one and a half months, these women professionals are able to uh, basically warm up their skills and come back to the mainstream uh, programs are there. Then people with different kinds of disability uh, is where uh, focus is happening now. So all of this is at the higher pro, the Bharat hiring piece. Yes. Geek interview, sir. Okay. Yeah. So uh, between the two, which is uh, a bigger contributor to your group turnover? Group turnover, uh, career it is a bigger contributor uh, because uh, the fee is, is very, very significant. And we also have an executive okay. search business, uh, Longhouse Consulting. Average price per transaction yeah, or the average invoice value is much yes, higher. Yes, invoice value is much higher. And that okay. is a more established business, typically a much bigger business. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. What is your group turnover or what do you estimate? Group turnover will, will be about uh, 300 crores plus uh, that uh, okay. annual turnover uh, we have. And hmm. IPRO will be about close to one third of that revenue. And okay. two third will be about sourcing. 100 crores. Yes, yeah. So, uh, IPRO is doing a lot. You know, So, like say the Bharat hiring piece, you would be competing with someone like say Apna, which is a unicorn yes. uh, in your... A gig interview piece there, there are a couple of startups which have raised funding also in that piece pre-assessed candidates piece you have someone like say aspiring minds which uh, I don't know if they are still around but at one point of time they had raised funds and they, yeah. were, they were attempting to do this like pre-assessed candidates 
then you have a core applicant tracking system where yeah. you are competing with both global and domestic players, like say a lever or a bull heart international level would be offering a similar hiring suit you are offering in Hire Pro. And in assessments, you're competing with, say, Metal, you know, like the Procter assessment has a similar offering. And all of these are like well-funded competitors. What's your take on this? Like doing so many things at the same So if you look at our industry has seen possibly every possible kind of disruption. Uh, uh, and I always say that the industry can get disrupted in, say, six or seven ways. Uh, one is uh, that the technology, the digital part of it, which was, I will say, the Nopri.com, the job portals. Uh, that was possibly the first disruption that the industry saw. Uh, the second disruption was uh, in terms of the social media coming in, the WhatsApp and LinkedIn and uh, other qualified platforms coming in. A lot of hiring happens through WhatsApp and all as well. Uh, then uh, you look at the advent of MNCs in many places. Uh, in our business, we saw Manpower, Redeco, Randstad, and likes of them coming to India. Uh, over This was mostly between 2003 to 2008, nine is when most of the MNCs came to India. And when obviously MNCs come to India, they come with bigger uh, monies and uh, they try to acquire Indian companies, good, small, bad, whatever it is, uh, be there. Then uh, you have startups uh, which are there and the startups get funded uh, as you are talking about some of those guys which raise money. Uh, then you have COVID kind of events, you have the subprime crisis kind of events, right? So I see that with a lot of humility and uh, that our industry has seen all possible disruptions. And uh, I must say that we are the largest uh, when it comes to full-time hiring. Uh, uh, and we have seen all of that. Uh, now, if I go more specific to your point about that specialized firms that have come in, I think the nemesis has been uh, that recruitment in the supply chain business and uh, you try solving a part of the problem. Uh, mostly the client problem is not just that. Client problem is poor quality input and what they do with your output. I, I, invariably, if they are, if, the, if those two are not good, they blame you that, okay, your, your solution was not good. Uh, you might be doing a good job of assessment, but if that assessment is not being properly utilized, uh, into your intimate hiring, uh, uh, the blame comes on you uh, over there. Similarly with the input, like if you build anything on AI, if the input data is not at all curated, uh, you may have a great parsing engine. Uh, it doesn't work. Uh, then you look at technology. Now, if you are not managing data and technology properly, uh, then what can technology do for you? Uh, and then you will blame it on automation. Uh, so I think uh, th this is a big challenge over here. Uh, and that is where uh, we realize that in our country, we are not a DIY economy, uh, uh, first of all. So uh, expecting people to actually use technology on their own is very limited, unfortunately. We are assisted economy. Uh, so that is where this whole term of technology level remotely managed came in. Uh, Why we would love people to use technology purely, but we know that they will require remote management. They will require that kind of support. Uh, so assisted services is uh, purely. And over a period of time, as the market matures, uh, you can keep reducing your human part of it and expect more, more DIY to happen uh, over there. Plus, you cannot, uh, unless until you capture the entire data flow, uh, it is very difficult to make intervention. For example, I have done a good assessment. Uh, but if I don't know what the final hiring has been and who has got retained, 
who has performed well in the company, uh, then my ability to, I'm missing out on that feedback. I use it as an input to improve my assessments uh, over there. Uh, so, so, so those are the places where as part of uh, Korean at Hyperro, we said that let's look at the whole thing as a supply chain. Uh, and as I said that we are happy to support companies for point problem, point solution uh, uh, over there. Uh, also, what happens is that uh, when you uh, have such a large, uh, diverse uh, supply chain, now in every aspect, somebody may say, okay, uh, in assessment, there is a top three, top five. But as a large incumbent, uh, uh, I may be, say, the top player in, say, three or four categories. But in the rest of the categories, I'm happy to be even the top three. Right? And we are not in the feature war. Like, to take the example of uh, housing.com and 99 acres. Right. Uh, uh, now, housing.com, the amount of money they burned uh, to basically develop, try out new things. And as a large incumbent, 99 acres was smart enough to be two quarters of behind. But they do those things with one-tenth the cost uh, 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 of what they have done. So I think what we have done is, as a large incumbent, we have not burned those disproportionate amount of money. We have not played existential games. But we have been always alert and on our toes. And whatever good we have seen that uh, something disruptive is coming in, uh, uh, we have tried to do that. Uh, may not be uh, with the 9 on 10, maybe with 7 on 10. Because most of the time we have seen that as a large incumbent, if you are 7 on 10 uh, is also good enough. Uh, 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 rather than a new kid on the block trying to do 9 on 10 uh, kind of a thing. So those are the places where uh, uh, we have uh, tried to play it smartly. We have not diluted any equity. Uh, in the business uh, and we have not taken any existential bets uh, into our business. Uh, brick by brick approach kept on building it and uh, that is where you see in our industry uh, the exits have not been good. Uh, typically like if you look at whatever some of the names that you mentioned and you look at the valuations at which they were sold uh, to uh, large companies and uh, the amount of money they raised and the valuations they went out I, I don't think that uh, the investors made any good monies uh, in, in those kind of deals uh, over there. And for you, your uh, customer acquisition cost would be much lower, right? Like yeah. somebody who's starting fresh have to spend a lot on signing up customers, but you already have distribution, yeah. you already have relationships. Yeah. It will be a lot easier for you to acquire customers at scale uh, yes. if you launch a new product. And also, our uh, uh, we have a lot of alumni now. But as I said that we have been hiring from campus, training people from scratch and all. And, and we have maintained excellent relationship with our uh, alumni, uh, being running things transparently. So uh, mostly we have seen wherever ever alumni has gone, uh, they are today heading recruitment, HR. Uh, they are giving us business. And in our business, uh, you can't say one thing and do another thing. It's an open book. So they know that uh, how we operate. Uh, so, 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 so that comes very handy. If you look at, uh, we do so much of work with the startup world. And uh, why? Because a lot of people whom we placed between 2004 and 10 uh, uh, in startups from IITs and all, when these guys were doing their ventures, uh, we were the first port of call. Like Flipkart kind of company, we started working with them when they were operating from a, a 10 by 20 size office in Koramangla. Amazing. Uh, this uh, career net business must be extremely profitable, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Because you have high retention rates. You don't have much Correct. client acquisition costs because your client acquisition is all organic. Uh, yeah. 
I guess you would only be spending money on higher probe is just uh, to build out technology. Higher probe also, I will say technology has become self-sustainable now. Yeah, whatever licensing revenues and all we make, we are profitable uh, on that as well. Yes. So, what kind of gross margin as a group do you? We will do about uh, close to thirty percent uh, kind of gross margin. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, amazing, amazing, amazing. So, uh, it, this sounds like a good. Uh, uh, IPO ready kind of a business, right? With this kind of cross margin. And I am assuming you would be growing by 20-30% each year or yeah, something like that. Yeah. COVID, of course, was so a very, so very like, a big uh, uh, positive bummer. Because, uh, you know, uh, especially in technology, the hiring madness was uh, unprecedented. So, so COVID, uh, three years, easily the company grew almost two, two and a half times. Uh, the last 12 months have been slightly tough. Uh, because as you know, the job markets are not doing so well. Uh, but uh, I think we have covered a lot of ground in COVID. And uh, we are uh, quite uh, able to defend that uh, over there. So this year is more of a consolidation. Uh, because of all the madness, uh, three-year madness starting from 2020, uh, which has happened. Uh, Two-year madness, I will say. So, 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 but, but yeah, overall, we are on a good trajectory. So what was your top line in 1920? Just 1920 might be, I'm not remembering exactly, but maybe 140, uh, 130, 140 crores. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So you, you're like doubling, you've doubled it yeah, in yeah. the last three Easily years. Doubled, basically. Yeah. Easily doubled. Amazing. 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 Okay. Okay. So as I was saying, there's like a perfect for IPO kind of a business, right? Like growing 20, 30%, 30% gross margin. So basically, uh, uh, one thing which I have always believed in, and uh, this is not a new line. Some I told some friend investor 20 years back, and he reminded me last year that you remember you told me this line. I always believe the best companies are bought; they are never sold. We are definitely ready for an IPO. But the larger question is what do we want to do with the money? Because we do not see, at least as of now, a lot of inorganic growth happening. But uh, I guess if you want to go from 300 crores to let's say 1500 crores. An IPO would be the way forward, right? You would have to look at inorganic opportunities, yes. so, uh, like what InfoEdge has done. Yes. You know, like okay. InfoEdge continuously. So we are uh, like incubated in a way. Yeah. Zapato policy was higher, all of these. So you are right. Uh, so we are now looking at doing a lot of prolific investments uh, because uh, we have good surplus. Uh, and since we work with a lot of these companies, we have a good idea about the health and growth of these companies. I think that that side has started. Uh, in a quite a significant way. And uh, our uh, Indicube yeah. venture uh, is where uh, already 125 crores we have put in from CareerNet. So that money has already happened. So so that's a substantial investment. That's a group company we have done in this. We are also seeing a lot of international expansion happening now. Uh, because what has happened after COVID, uh, uh, the talent has become borderless. Companies are happy if somebody is sitting in Bangalore and working for a company in Vietnam. So we are now getting a lot of business from Korea, Vietnam, Mexico, Indonesia, these kind of countries also, where they are not expecting these individuals to actually go there and work. Uh, they will be working sitting out of India. And essentially, we believe that our biggest strength is the Indian talent. And uh, wherever the Indian talent is required or is going, I think a career that should go to those places. And higher pro technology being there, uh, we are able to deliver a lot of those projects remotely. Otherwise, if we have to set up 100 people team in each of these countries, it's a challenge. But uh, we can do a lot of stuff remotely uh, over there. So so international expansion is uh, is clearly the focus. 
the Bharat story uh, is a tier focus. Uh, the tier two, tier three growth, domain expansion is also happening, uh, or, and there's more and more focus on automation. Okay, interesting. So you said you started doing investments. Uh, so you have like an investment team now within CareerNet, which evaluates. And do you do like angel investment or like Series A or like what? What's your investment thesis? So basically, we we don't have a team team. Uh, the the advantage we have because of our hiring and doing senior hires. Uh, uh, typically in a lot of startups we are privy to a lot of information so I think uh, we are able to actually get a lot of uh, screened uh, good quality companies coming our way uh, so mostly it has been I will say a piggyback approach uh, if we have seen uh, something good somebody known to us putting in money uh, then we have been doing that and we have been investing anywhere from about 50 lakhs going up to 2 crores in each of these uh, companies so normal ticket size is around that and then we are now also coming in as a uh, LP in different funds. Uh, so as more funds are coming in, people are keen to have us also as an LP. Uh, so so forty four five funds we are now LP in that businesses over there. So mostly uh, that's the way we are doing uh, uh, as of now. But uh, yeah, over the next two years, uh, uh, we definitely see that we will require a family office or a full blessed team just managing this. Uh, but but we are trying to basically put our handkerchief or be on as many tables as possible at this point of time uh, and then scale it up from there. And what stage do you invest in? Early stage? Series A? What level? Basically, Series A uh, kind of stage. We are trying to put money into real businesses, <laughs> typically rather than uh, the last match standing businesses or winner takes it all kind of businesses. Because it's our, all our uh, post-tax paid money. Amazing. Let's talk about IndieCube now. What was the origin of the idea, the, the birth of it? Like, And you have invested a lot of your personal funds in it. So just tell me about that journey of conceptualizing, building up IndieCube. Yeah. Birth or idea was, I will say, more incremental into our CareerNet journey. So what was happening was CareerNet, things were growing very well. So every two years, three years, we're changing office. And uh, we were fed up with that because when you take a new office, you do the interiors and a lot of money. And if you have to get out after two, three years, you lose a lot of money. And then the whole pain of relocation and all that. So in 2011, we thought that why don't we pick up a larger office space? Uh, yeah, we required about 50,000 square feet for our growth at that time. So we, we were about 500, 600 people at that time. So with that intent, uh, we thought that let's sign up a 100,000 square feet building and 50,000 uh, career net will occupy. The other 50,000, we will give it to different companies. And uh, uh, and because of career net background at Hypro, we were having a lot of clients uh, who might be happy to co-locate with us. Not MNCs, but a lot of offshore development centers, startups and all might be happy to come and uh, be with us in the same office. So with that intent, we signed up a building in 2011. This was a build to suit. We signed up. And 2013, that building got ready. We moved in, in that building around April of 2013. And as planned, 50% of the space we gave to other companies. Uh, now, once we had those companies in that building, uh, that those companies started asking that, can I use your boardroom once a month? Uh, the training room that we have created for us uh, using that, uh, the phone, the transport, uh, the IT infrastructure. So many things that we created for our own requirement 
those companies being smaller companies, they wanted to leverage all of that. And uh, we found uh, it a very prudent business decision also to give them the thing. Right? Because we had better economies of scale. If more people are using my internet, my internet cost goes down and all that. So we happily did that. And uh, uh, within six, eight months, by the end of 2013, we realized that there is a big gap in the market. Uh, that uh, at one end you have tech park uh, kind of uh, things uh, which are mostly on the periphery of the cities and then you have uh, very swanky buildings like your One Horizon Tower in Gurgaon or uh, you have India Pool Center in Bombay or UB City in Bangalore and all that. So those buildings are not affordable by anyone and everyone uh, over there. So then if you get out of these properties uh, you realize that uh, uh, you have individual landlords and the whole market is very, very unbranded. Uh, you really don't know that uh, the building has compliances. Uh, will the landlord pay the property taxes on time? Will they be maintaining the lifts properly? Will the DG run when the power is not there and all that? So that was a gap. You could see that the concept of services, the concept of brand, reliability, all that is not non-existent over there. So this is something which we uh, started figuring out. Then uh, our current expansion was happening and when these guys were there, we asked them, okay, okay, why don't you get Because we require more space for career net. Uh, then a few of these companies prompted us and why are you asking us to go? Can, can you take some space nearby and give us space there? Uh, so that was our prompt to start IndieQ. So, so I think this idea uh, was brewing in our uh, minds uh, in that two, three year period. And 2015 is when uh, this whole thing uh, actually shaped up. So at that point of time, uh, me and my brother both were very actively focused on the career net side of the business. So my uh, better half, Meghna, and my father, they both uh, ventured into this uh, and uh, full time. And, uh, and of course, we were supporting them uh, in this whole thing. And uh, we signed up our first property uh, around March of 2015. Uh, on outer ring road of about 150,000 square feet. And uh, within six months, uh, we could fully fill up the whole space. And uh, we had no background into real estate. You are always told that real estate is for local people. It is not for migrants. And it's a dirty business, political connection, this, that, all that uh, was there. But on the contrary, we found that nothing of that type actually came in our way. And uh, very smoothly, we could fill it up. Then... Uh, the, it boosted our confidence. We picked up another property in 2015. Uh, and uh, KPMG came and took that property because they were doing a large campus for themselves. Uh, so that was taking almost two and a half years more. So they needed a transit space. So within 2015, we almost had uh, more than 200,000 square feet of space. Yeah, how many seats? 2,000 square feet? Uh, this will be about 4,000 seats. Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, 4,000 seats. So, so, so basically, the, that gave us a lot of confidence that, okay, we have hit something big and let's now uh, go whole hog into this business. The way we started career, to be honest with you, we started in a very similar way. Uh, there was no business plan as such. Uh, there was no time or any of those things. We found an opportunity and we said, okay, let's go for it. Uh, and from the beginning, our thesis uh, was that this is a B2B business. This is an enterprise business. Uh, yeah, because uh, because of our recruiting background, uh, we were very clear that why companies invest in good quality spaces. See, the biggest consumer of spaces in India is IT industry, followed by startups and all now. And I, when I'm saying IT industry, I'm including uh, 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 all possible verticals and all of that. In that. 
दैट पर्सनलाइजेशन इज द एक्सपेक्टेशन एंड इंडिया इज अ प्राइस कॉन्शियस मार्केट सो पीपल इनवेरिएबली इफ यू गिव दैम थ्री चॉइसेज दे विल गो विद मिडिल चॉइस लाइक कार्स वेन वी बाय वी डोंट बाय द टॉप एंड वी डोंट बाय द डोवेस्ट एंड मॉडल वी मोस्टली बाय द मिडिल वन विद सम एक्सेसरीज दैट्स द जनरल माइंड सेट विद मोस्ट ऑफ द प्रोडक्ट्स विच वी हैव सो ऑफिस इज नो डिफरेंट फ्रॉम दैट so i think those were the things which uh, which came very handy to us and we were clear from the beginning uh, and of course the struggle in indicube was very different uh, to be very honest there was no struggle struggle so to say because by the time career uh, business was doing well we had built our own reputation in the market uh, all that was there so we did not had uh, any bootstrapping moments as such but uh, the core principles of being frugal getting the unit economics right uh uh basically building a good culture in the team uh being uh, uh, cognizant about upstream downstream opportunities uh like in say when we did hire pro we looked at all the upstream downstream opportunities in the recruitment supply chain so very similarly when we are got here uh what is upstream downstream has to be looked into and where we can do in house or partner and all that uh has been the driving force and that is how the journey of indicu uh, started shaping up uh, in 2015 16 okay so i want to zoom in to some of the things that you said um first of all i believe there are two models of uh, shared workspaces uh, one is like a we work model where yeah. we work has built it out and then they find people who will take seats in it uh, second is i guess smart works kind of a model where they build as per specifications so if a company says i want a place for 50 employees and they will build it as per the company specifications and then uh, lease it out uh, i guess that would more be like a leasing as what we work does is more of co-working what is uh, indicube's model and so am i this is where the thing started typically one was the weaver school of thought which was more the typical regus if you call it uh, the business centers used to be the older version of it and uh, then from there the newer version came in which is the co-work Uh, essentially what co-working means is short size and short stay or all short stay like companies will go to that place because if they have 5 10 20 employees they are okay or if they know that they are starting a india center and they don't know what will happen after one year then they will go into a short stay uh, kind of a location so short size short stay defined our business centers and to a large extent the co-work now uh, uh, once uh, people started the enterprises started latching on to it is where this whole concept of long stay large size Uh, personalization and all that started coming in, and I think uh, the both the schools of thought, uh, the personalized as well as not personalized at all, uh, the business center model has started converging. And today I can say that everybody in the market is doing both. Uh, that's a fair assessment of the thing. Now, for most companies, uh, the pivot could be for some uh, still it might be the co-working, for some it might be the enterprise. Uh, I think. for a company like us uh, our pivot is the enterprise like for example 90% of the business that we do is all enterprise business where we provide personalized customized offices about 10% is co-working for us and uh, uh, co-working is very important to us even though the number is small because that is the place where a lot of younger companies or uh, startups come to us so we have to funnel for you so some of those yes. co-working clients end up becoming enterprise clients lot of them actually because the real estate by nature is very sticky uh, if you see once you get into an office and your employees get used to that whole thing then unless until there is a big push uh, people do not change offices 
uh, because a lot of your employees take uh, their residences around the uh, office and uh, stuff like that. And, and uprooting offices is not easy. You have to change all addresses. Your internet connection has to be changed. Uh, and then uh, the whole relocation, uh, all, all that is there. So, so and that is where you see a DLF or a Prestige in Bangalore or Embassy have developed. Most of these guys started 20 years back into the pilots. And then they gave some small space to a large MNC. And uh, said, okay, give me a commitment of five years, which we call as a lock-in term. And that lock-in never got over. They knew required more space, more space. And today, uh, you see that relationship has started 5,000 square feet. has become a 5 million square feet relationship. Uh, so so there, is, there is a huge uh, stickiness in this business uh, for all these reasons. And uh, so it is very important to catch companies young uh, and be with them in their growth uh, and, and build out uh, from there on. So today, if you look at the market, uh, the market has good, bad, about 300 players. It's quite a fragmented business. Uh, and why it is fragmented to that extent? Because uh, most of the developers which have office space, like when I say developers, I'm not talking the big one. Uh, there are lots of them which have one building, two building. Now, uh, if their younger generation is interested in starting something, they will put out some fit out and then say that we are poor. Uh, so there are a lot of, uh, I will say, one center or one city uh, uh, company, a very large number of them. But if you look at a pan-India, multi-city, uh, really large players, 5 million square feet plus, I will say the market is between 5 to 7 players. Uh, 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 who are those 5 to 7 players? So, like you look at us, uh, WeWork, SmartWorks, uh, AWFIS, TableSpace, to some extent SimplyWorks, these will be the 5 players which will be among the largest uh, over there. Then there will be people like 91 Springboard and few smaller ones and then a few players who have done well in given cities uh, like uh, Red Break and uh, like that kind of players. Scooter in uh, Gurgaon has done very well uh, over there. So, so if you look at about 10 players uh, uh, will be there and out of which about 5 will be the Pan-India larger players and who have raised institutional capital as well. Uh, because it's, uh, uh, in this business uh, it's not easy to raise institutional capital because institutional capital tends to not go beyond the top five in any category uh, because they always try to put their money behind the top one or two. Uh, this being a large category, maybe the upper limit is five uh, players. So I think increasingly, uh, uh, and real estate is on a lot about location also. So as a result of that, it is wrong to say that the market will be with five players only. There will always be landlords who will have great buildings, great locations, uh, and those buildings will do well just because uh, they happen to be at the great location and all that. So, uh, so yeah, so it will be fair to say that 50 to 60% of the market uh, is and will consolidate in the favor of top 5-6 players. Uh, and the consolidation will be more driven by the demand side than the supply side uh, because the demand side will be more and more discerning. Uh, typically, like uh, for the reasons of ease of doing business, business continuity, credibility, and then this whole focus on ESG is going to come in. Uh, where like companies will like to be in a uh, low carbon uh, emission buildings, green buildings and all that. So I think that is where the men and boys will uh, start getting differentiated. And uh, since it's a B2B business, corporates invariably will ask for compliances, uh, would like to go with better quality players and all that. So I think demand side is what is going to push more and more consolidation. Can you just help me understand what you mean when you say consolidation will be on demand side rather than supply side? What is the difference? So basically, supply side consolidation uh, would mean you 
sign up. Supply side means basically that uh, more more people start the business. Uh, I don't see yeah. that there is going to be any dearth of supply of buildings. Uh, but the customer is going to say, look, I don't want to go beyond top five uh, because mm -hmm. I am going to run my business. So I want to only go with players which have high credibility. Uh, so these are so basically the customer is going to demand more and more, and that will push uh, uh, the consolidation. So uh, what is the profitability uh, metrics or what drives profitability here? Like let's say you have one space, one one campus, <clears throat> one building, whatever. What are the economics of it? At what percentage occupancy does it become profitable and so on? Just help me understand the economics of this business. So before uh, the economics, I will start with that why the customer looks at us. Uh, because when you deal with enterprise clients, uh, uh, the invariably the decisions are taken by the CFO organizations, procurement and all that. And uh, these are all uh, hardened, uh, uh, tough uh, folks. Why they should come to a managed office? And traditional understanding has been that if you go to a business center, it is expensive. Uh, but where uh, the business centers are different from managed offices is that they are long-stay large size. And the moment you get into long-stay large size, the customer invariably is going to look at a you versus me kind of a computation. Now, <clears throat> multiple things uh, make uh, this uh, cheaper than the end customer uh, uh, decision to go on their own. One is the way we procure the real estate. So, for example, uh, when we go and take up a building, we take up a full building. And uh, we take up uh, a building on a 20-year lease. Now, if a end customer were to go, they will take for five years. They may say, I will take a floor. So, obviously, the landlord will be more excited about giving a better commercial if you are taking for 20 years in the whole building. Right? It solves a bigger problem for him or her. Then you look at uh, the interiors. Now, a customer may come and at best, they may amortize their interior over five years. But when we do interiors, uh, then our air conditioning, electrical, uh, a lot of uh, our uh, interiors are amortized over eight, nine years. Our carpets and chairs may last, last lesser, but uh, a lot of them last longer over there. Uh, then you look at the services. Uh, when we deploy manpower, they also do common area maintenance, they do the office maintenance. When somebody else deploys the manpower, they will only do their office maintenance. Uh, we have one security for the entire building, for example. Now, if you have a small office also, you still require a security guard uh, or in three shifts uh, kind of a so, so there is a, uh, then same thing applies to chai, coffee, internet, anything that you can think of. So there is a huge economies of scale uh, that we are able to build in. There is a much better utilization that we bring in. There is a clear case of 30 to 40% price reduction. Uh, what the customer uh, will be spending. If the customer is spend, going to spend 100 rupees, then this whole cost comes down to 60, 65, 70 rupees, uh, depending upon the scale, it comes down. Now that 30 rupee is a big arbitrage that has got created, which is what gets shared uh, between the customer and us. So now after COVID, we are finding that a lot of these companies are taking up space. Uh, HDFC Bank has taken up space like that. Federal Bank has taken up space. So I think this is uh, to be uh, to the way I see it that this is a 2.2 of commercial real estate. You look at 20 years back, uh, every builder thought that they can uh, make a hotel and run it or they can uh, create a mall and run it but uh, when uh, mall operators like Phoenix came in uh, builders realized that owning a mall or owning a hotel is a different game but running it is a different game so the operators and the ownership has got decoupled 
And I think commercial real estate is seeing the same kind of decoupling uh, between ownership and management. What's your has to pricing range like? Like a per seat pricing? Price. Pricing range starts anywhere from, I will say, uh, about 7,000 was up to about 12,000, 13,000. Uh, rarely it will touch 15,000. So most of our spaces are given between 8 to 10,000 rupees a seat, typically. Uh, that's and the bulk. This is for the core uh, service, not for the other upstream, downstream opportunities. You mentioned that uh, there are upstream and downstream monetization opportunities here. Uh, th those are yeah. add-ons to this 8 to 10. What are those? Just help me understand some of them. So like, basically, uh, like uh, this uh, 8 to 10,000 or a typical seat uh, comes with a basic amount of internet uh, that is promised. Uh, it comes with tea, coffee is included as part of that. And uh, uh, the normal working hours are covered, like say 9 to 7 kind of working hours, 5 days a week uh, are part of uh, this whole thing. Uh, with some uh, uh, basically optimal level of parking. What are the drivers for growing this? Is it about being able to acquire premium locations, good properties, or is it about being able to acquire good customers? For example, if you take the case of Burgao, uh, if you talk about uh, God Force Road, for example, uh, or you talk about Huda City Center, those are very good performing markets. So there, the key thing is about acquiring good quality real estate. But if you go to Sona Road or if you go to Manesar, it's other way. It is about uh, having the customer. Uh, so, or Noida, for example. Large parts of Noida are, uh, uh, it's a consumer's market. It's a tenant's market. It's not a landlord's market. Uh, so, so, so wherever it's a tenant's market, uh, supply will tend to be larger uh, over there. And landlord's market is where the supply is in short. So, so those places will have premium. So, I think that is how the power balance uh, moves uh, uh, between the two of And uh, what is your customer acquisition approach? Uh, is it through existing relationships? Because CareerNet obviously would have a lot of relationships that yeah. you can leverage. Uh, so, so if you look at, uh, we are quite unique uh, in this industry because most of the players we have in our industry, they all happen to be from real estate background or happen to be from different backgrounds. But uh, we are quite unique. So our one third of the business comes from reference. Uh, these are essentially companies uh, who have taken up space in CareerNet. Because CareerNet, if you see, uh, uh, last year we built 1,600 different enterprises in India. So imagine 1,600 in enterprises in India, we have a first-hand relationship. And India, good, bad, will have 10,000 meaningful enterprises uh, over there. So our coverage is very, very high over there. And uh, first thing, when somebody comes in India, uh, starts operations in India will say that I need people. That's the big reason people come here. And the, the, so obviously, among when they talk about people, we are among the top two, three firms in India. Uh, you big, I pick up anybody in big four. And if these companies go and ask for a recommendation, invariably they will recommend career in the top two or three. Uh, so when our guys go, obviously they ask that, where are you looking at setting up? So we have a huge advantage over there uh, of that. So one third of our business comes from that. Uh, one third comes from our growth of existing clients uh, who are already with us. I talked about uh, the stickiness bit in this. Another third comes from our brokers. Within that, almost 20% uh, comes from uh, the IPCs, which are the larger brokers like CBRE, JL, Kushman. About 12-13% comes from uh, the smaller brokers, the local brokers uh, over there. Amazing. Uh, what what scale is IndiCube at currently? How many seats? So we How have many cities, now, how many campuses? 
So we have 6 million square feet of space now. And uh, 6 million square feet will mean about 120,000 odd seats. We are present in 12 cities. Uh, so if you look at NCR, we have Varda and Gurgaon. Uh, then uh, Bombay, Chennai, Hyderabad, Bangalore, Pune. Uh, we have a good presence now in tier Jaipur, Kochi, Coimbatore, Lucknow. Uh, these are the tier 2 locations. Madurai, uh, we have now. And we are adding to tier 2 locations uh, over there. And we have close to 80 properties. Uh, 80 centers are there across India. So yeah, so that's the uh, broad breakup. And how much revenue will you close this year, right? Indicate this Estimate. year we will do about close to about 900 crore stock line. Uh, wow. that's so th this has already overtaken the core core business, like it's, it's 3x of yeah, yeah, core yeah. business. Yeah, yeah, this is a much wow. much bigger business. The TAM, oh. as you say, the TAM is much much larger in this. <laughs> this is an ocean, actually. The estate is real, so. amazing, amazing. And uh, what do you think will more growth come from tier one or tier two? Like, what trends are you seeing in terms of? where demand is coming from? So, tier 1 will continue to be a very dominant uh, uh, force uh, when it comes to uh, the absorption. So, if you look at uh, India absorbs about 45 million square feet of net absorption of commercial real estate. Uh, this is a grade A absorption that happens in India. And, uh, uh, and this is predominantly uh, in the tier 1 as of now. Tier 2 number will be This maybe is annual million absorption, million. like 45 annual million absorption. per year. Okay. Yeah. So, total stock of grade A real estate in India is about 750 million square feet. And we are adding about 45 to 50 million year on year. And uh, within this 45 million, Bangalore is 13 million, 12 to 13 million. Uh, Bombay is 4 to 5 million. NCR is 5 million. Hyderabad is 7 million. So, just imagine the power of Bangalore, uh, typically, uh, when it comes to new addition. Uh, of course, Bombay... Uh, the existing base of real estate is very large. Bombay has 2 million square feet, 200 million square feet of space, which is already there. Bangalore is about 160 million, but Bangalore is growing much faster than Bombay uh, over there. Uh, so, tier 2s are coming up. And uh, tier 2, we are finding that cities like Coimbatore, Indore uh, 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 will do well. Ahmedabad will do very well. Uh, because uh, cities, see the way Pune and Bangalore came up 25 years back, I think in a lot of ways, that same story will get repeated over the next 15-20 years. Uh, Indore, Coimbatore, they happen to be very strong educational places. Uh, they happen to be uh, good manufacturing centers. Uh, so the average work culture in those cities is good. Uh, climate is good uh, over there. Uh, talent availability is quite good. And there is a lot of diaspora from these cities which has gone and worked in different places. Uh, so... So they are okay to, to, uh, to relocate. Like you talk to average guy in Pune, uh, half of them will say that I came here for education and never went back. But uh, definitely like when we talk about a 5 or a 10 trillion dollar economy, uh, definitely this can't be a six city phenomenon. Uh, uh, we definitely see 15, 20 more growth things getting added. And as IndyCube, our focus is that there are 50 cities in India which have a population of 1 million plus. So we want to be in all the 50 cities. Our presence is given. Now comes, ki, okay, which cities we want to be at scale. So that is a function of opportunity. Uh, so presence-wise, you will be everywhere. Uh, scale-wise, you will see uh, uh, as just things mature. Uh, I'm guessing one of your uh, secret sources is your decision-making on where to set up your next centers, right? Like that, that could be like a very key 
ஒரு <laughs> So for us, College Course Road is a different market, Manesar is a different market, Udyo VR is a different market, Sora Road is a different market. Noida, again, within Noida, Expressway is different, 62-63 is different. So there are at least 10 different micro markets in NCR uh, over there. And if you start adding in that way, India will have like 50-60 sizable large micro market where there is good uh, office activity uh, there. so 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 each micro market we have to look at that uh, as i said in the beginning there is a tenants market or it's a landlord uh there are evergreen markets like our golf course road uh no brainer any stone you throw will hit the target uh, over there but uh, when you go to other locations you have to be careful uh, uh so so and you have to see always i always say that delhi changes its uh, business a high speed five times in 30 years right Uh, started with nirulas when we were all growing up then it moved to priya then it moved to saket then it moved to mg road in gurgaon now it is aerocity so five times delhi has changed its high street in 30 years uh, and i think a lot of indian cities will see that kind of a transition happen uh, over there india will keep surprising us on the positive and negative side but you are so right on that that i will give you the data that uh, before covid we had 50 properties and we left just one property of 30000 square feet So till date we have not closed any center, uh, and all our centers are profitable. Amazing. Do you plan to raise external funds for Indicube? So Indicube, we have raised uh, two rounds. There is a large private equity uh, fund called Westbridge Capital. Now uh, they are a eight billion dollar fund now, and uh, a very pathy, respectable fund. And uh, most of their LPs are uh, university endowments like Stanford, Princeton, and all in US. uh so so they they decided to make an exception uh, by putting 100 crores uh, this was in 2018 and uh, the last round we did was last year march uh, where uh, 225 crores we raised 100 crores came from them and 125 crores was put in by us so 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 we led the round and uh, we are playing with our own money and uh, uh, basically so totally if you see we have now almost 325 crores of the capital 200 has come from west bridge 125 has come and we have 70% plus uh, shareholding in the company we want to keep the business uh, we don't want to sell the business uh, and uh, definitely this business is ipoable business typically uh, and at some stage we'll have to give exit to investors so i think this business might see ipo earlier than career day and that brings us to the end of this conversation I want to ask you for a favor now. Did you like listening to this show? I'd love to hear your feedback about it. Do you have your own startup ideas? I'd love to hear them. Do you have questions for any of the guests that you heard about in this show? I'd love to get your questions and pass them on to the guests. 
write to me at ad at the podium dot in. That's ad at t h e p o d i u m dot in.